What's up, guys? This is Ryan from Bible Dingers, and I am stoked to bring you another episode. And in this episode, we are discussing the eschatological view of post-millennialism due to our recent release of the final book of the Bible, Revelation. So, uh, in today's episode, we have Pastor Joel Webin from Right Response Ministries. Uh, Pastor Joel is the senior pastor of Covenant Bible Church in Austin, Texas. He's the founder and host of Right Response Ministries, including the very successful and the awesome YouTube page, Right Response Ministries. And he's also the host of the podcast Theology Applied. Um, So we were very grateful to have Pastor Joel on this episode for us, and he breaks down in style uh, post-millennialism, gives us a general overview, as well as um, refutes some basic rebuttals against post-millennialism. So give it a listen. We enjoyed having him on, and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. So we have an exciting conversation, like I said, with Pastor Joel Webin. Pastor Joel, thanks for being on, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's get right into it. Um, do you think you could, before we really get into some of the uh, deeper questions about postmillennialism, do you think you could give us a basic overview of postmillennialism and some of its uh, sort of basic supporting arguments? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I've written down some notes uh, for our podcast today, and so I'm going to read off of my phone some of the notes that I've written. But uh, in terms of just a general 30,000-foot view of what is postmillennialism, I've got the following. Uh, The postmillennialist believes that the millennium is an era, not necessarily a literal thousand years, so similar to all mill in that regard, during which Christ will reign over the earth, not from a literal and earthly throne, but through the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives. After this gradual Christianization of the world, so it deals with Christendom, um, after this gradual Christianization of the world, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. This is called postmillennialism because, by its view, Christ will return after the millennium. So that's where we get the idea of post-mill. Pre-mill, Jesus returns before um, before the millennium. And if you're, you know, there's a, obviously with each of these kind of three primary views, pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill, there are, with any doctrine or any viewpoint, there's a spectrum of variance. And, you know, well, I, I'm post-mill, but I hold to this. I'm post-mill, I hold to that. Um, but as far as big ideas, um, I think it's important that we keep in mind there are three uh, positions, but really, in a sense, there are four because we have dispensational premillennialism and we have historic premillennialism. And so, dispensational premillennialism certainly, but even even a historic view. Uh, but the dispensational view of premillennialism is very much so: uh, Christ is going to return before a literal thousand-year reign, where he's going to be uh, seated. The temple will be reconstructed in Jerusalem, all this being literal and physical, and Christ will reign from David's literal throne 
uh, for a thousand years on earth, but this is after his return. So Christ returns, then you enter the millennium. Whereas post-millennial is the idea, post-millennialism is that Christ will return after his millennial reign on earth. And that it's not necessarily a literal thousand years, um, but, but rather it's this time period, it's this age um, where we're going to see a gradual increase of the nations being Christianized. Uh, we're going to see Christ ruling and reigning um, in a literal sense. He is physically seated because he's the God-man, physically seated at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. Uh, but all authority, uh, both on earth and in heaven, has been given to him. And so he has a real reign. And I would say, uh, last thing I'll say on this is, and, and the all-mill guys won't like me for this, but... Uh, Last thing I'll say is that, you know, um, in a nutshell, this is a generalization and it's not completely fair, but I think there's some truth in it, uh, enough truth that, that I think it's worth saying. In a nutshell, uh, premillennialism is the idea that, um, you know, if you're familiar with the already and not yet concept, postmillennialism is already, uh, but not yet in terms of Christ's rule, his reign, the kingdom already, but not yet. I think all mill is, um, is already, but not really. And then pre-mill is um, not at all, but suddenly and soon, right? So pre-mill is not at all, but suddenly and soon. All-mill is already, but not really. It's an ethereal, theoretical, spiritual, impotent reign of Christ. And then post-mill is already, and actually already, but not fully, is the way that we could say it. So post-mill in terms of the kingdom and Christ's reign, already, but not fully, all mill already, but not really. Pre-mill, not at all, but soon and suddenly in terms of the kingdom. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I pretty much align with our mill. So I would say amen to you already, not yet. But that's <laughs> a discussion we can have another time. <laughs> um, but for the next question, I'm really interested on what are the main portions of Scripture that support your view, the post-millennial view? And in what ways do these verses support post-millennialism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I think it's helpful to look at the whole of Scripture, right? We the, the only infallible interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And so looking at the whole of Scripture, because a lot of guys, when they think of eschatology, regardless of what position they have, it could be all-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, um, a lot of times we, we go straight to Revelation, right? Or, or a few key texts, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and all of those are uh, integral to the discussion and to building your eschatology. Um, but I think it's also helpful to look at the whole of Scripture. And what I mean by that is uh, even starting with Genesis and thinking of, of the creation narrative and how God created the world. Um, God did not create the world suddenly. So what we're, we're building a doctrine of our eschatology off of the nature of God and the character of God, and the work of the triune God in the physical world. Who is God? What is he like? And, and how does he accomplish his will here on earth? And what we see even in just creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God does not create the world suddenly. And what I mean by that is uh, that God does not speak everything into existence all at once. Now, God creates the world, we could say, in a sense, quickly, in a literal framework, because God does it in six literal days. So, so I, I do believe in a six literal day, 24-hour periods of time creation. I am a young earth, 
six literal day um, biblical creationist. Um, but with that, it's still notable that God doesn't create um, everything that we see in the created order all in one moment. He does it over the course. He does it gradually is what I'm getting at. So God creates things, then he divides them. He creates boundaries and distinctions, right? So it's the sky and the two bodies of water above above the sky and below the sky. It's water and land. It's night and day. Um, and God, God is creating. The earth first is, is void and without form. The, the spirit is hovering above the waters. But then God in the void, what he does is, is he, he, he created that substance. Then he begins to distinguish it, divide it, give it boundaries. And so there's a division and then there's filling. Right, the, the the water is filled with fish, the the, the sky with birds, uh, the land again. The, this distinction between the beast and the plants, but it's filled. So so we have creation and dividing and filling. And again, the big idea is that this happens gradually. It happens uh, systematically, progressively, gradually um, over time. And so so again, the post millennial view is that, uh, that Christ is ushering in his kingdom. It's here. It's already. Um, it's inaugurated in the life, death, and burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So in the earthly ministry of Christ 2,000 years ago, the kingdom is inaugurated. So it's already here. It's in your midst, um, but it is gradually expanding. And we see that's the nature of God. It's the way that he works. We see that in Genesis, uh, but other texts would be uh, Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, right? That it slowly grows into a large tree at, that, that covers the whole earth. It eventually covers uh, the whole earth and the birds of the air find rest in its branches. The beasts of the field are under its shade. Um, another analogy would be the idea of a little bit of leaven that eventually works. It's gradualistic. It works through the whole batch of dough. I Isaiah talks about this. I believe it's Isaiah or it may actually be Ezekiel. I think it's Ezekiel. Um, but he's wading into this river. Right. And at first it's at his ankles and then it's his knees and then it's his, you know, uh, all the way up to his thighs and his waist and his chest. And then eventually uh, he can can no longer stand. And the, and the river is getting deeper, uh, but it's also getting wider. Right. We also have text in Isaiah that the knowledge of God would fill the whole earth, cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Another example would be Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter two talks about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream. And in this dream, he sees this statue and that represents him. And the statue, the head of it is made of gold. And that more particularly represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. But then below the gold, it goes to silver and other precious metals and bronze. Um, and then eventually gets to the feet where there's a mixture of iron and, and, and iron and clay. Um, and so it's a divided kingdom is what Daniel says when he gives the dream and its interpretation by the power of God. Uh, but then there's this whole other substance outside of the statue, completely separate. And it's a, a stone. And, and it says in Daniel chapter two, it's a stone that has been cut by no human hand. And the stone begins to roll and it strikes the statue at the feet, this divided kingdom made partially of clay and partially of iron. Uh, but it doesn't just destroy the feet. It, it ultimately destroys all these kingdoms and, and they're completely crumbled and, and, and like just disintegrated down into dust and blown away, but then the stone does something else. So it doesn't just crush the kingdoms of this world, this stone cut by no human hand, but then the stone, after crushing those kingdoms, it then begins to grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. 
All right, that would be another text. Um, Isaiah chapter two would be another text. So Isaiah chapter two uh, talks about this. The word, this is starting in verse one, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations. Now, that may make you think, uh, just for a moment, that may make you think of Israel during the time of, of David's son, King Solomon, right? You got the queen, uh, uh, queen she uh, of Sheba coming to visit Solomon and says, um, I, you know, I was told of the splendor of, of your kingdom, its riches and, and, and of your wisdom. Behold, I was not even told the half of it. And one of the markers of, of this great kingdom is uh, even your servants are happy. Right. Your, your servants are are happy and not just in the sense of their emotions or their attitude, but they're happy for a reason. They're contented. Your servants are well fed and well clothed and they they're, they're not uh, you don't have a barbaric um, framework for dealing uh, with your servants. You, you don't you don't uh, command them and, and rule over them with an iron fist in a domineering fashion. And, and so what she's saying is that, that even the least in your kingdom are content, which, by the way, just a quick sidetrack. That's that's why Marxism didn't work in America. Um, they had to embrace this neo-Marxism and shift it from class warfare uh, to ultimately making it about race, given America's unique history. Not that America is unique with slavery. Uh, virtually every nation in the world had slavery and far more barbaric. I think it was like 3% or maybe 6% of all the African slave trade was chattel slavery actually came to America. A lot of it came to uh, the America, South American nations, and, and then, of course, uh, African nations selling slaves to other African African nations and in terms of kidnapping, which the Bible clearly condemns as, as being worthy of the death penalty, um, that was done by African tribes conquering other tribes and kidnapping those people. You don't have uh, white colonizers going into the jungle of Africa with human-sized nets, you know, running down people and catching them. You have them buying them. And there is a difference. I'm not saying that that's right necessarily, but there is a difference in buying a slave versus kidnapping a slave, actually making, enslaving someone, man stealers is, is what the King James would say. Uh, but in all of this, America has a unique history not so much that America had slaves, but a unique history um, in, in two, two fashions. Number one, um, it was a unique history in the sense that America ended slavery with a very bloody civil war. That's unique. So it's not so much a slavery in general. Every nation had slavery virtually, um, and, and many still do. Uh, but it's the fact that America conquered slavery, abolished slavery by this, this bloody civil war. That's unique to our history. And then the other element that I would say is unique to our history is that America is successful. And when you think of, of the heart, at the level of the heart and sin and total depravity, and these kinds of doctrines, um, a, a massive motivating factor underlining all of social justice and critical race theory and neo-Marxism, all these kinds of things, is envy. And, and the reason why other nations don't get the headline of the story, other nations that had slaves were more barbaric in their slavery or even still have slaves. The reason why they're not in the limelight, in the spotlight as much as America is because those nations, to be frank, those nations are poor. And what I mean by that is um, there's going to be far more criticism towards a nation that had slavery that's successful. A nation that was actually where, where their, their, their founding of the principles actually worked. It's a prosperous nation and a nation that has had up until recently just laws and all those kinds of, so civil war 
and the fact that America's unparalleled success, um, I think, has has made America unique in the slavery thing. So Marx, he he didn't he did not factor in that capitalism would be so palpable, so profound that, that the middle class, right? Because his whole thing was the bourgeoisie versus um, that your common, you know, the, the peasants. Uh, he didn't factor in um, a, a category for a middle class that, that would be so prosperous that they would be vacationing two weeks a year, all own a home, have a car and, and have a, a, a fairly high quality of life, meaning that they're, they're just not angry enough. They're not oppressed enough to, to, to organize and to riot. And so uh, Marxism, classic Marxism, the way that Marx understood it did not work in America, but they made it about race. And so anyways, my, my whole point is to say that in, in all of this, in all of this, um, my, my, my point is that you, you think of King Solomon and you think of you think of, of, of the Queen of Sheba and all the nations of the earth coming uh, to see Solomon and his kingdom. And one of the marks of, of the fact that Solomon really was wise was that the wisdom, because it was actually, it wasn't uh, wisdom that was worldly wisdom, which is first of all demonic, um, but, but it was godly wisdom, which is first of all pure. Uh, one of the marks of it being true godly wisdom is that it actually produced wealth and power and, and, and a general level of happiness in his kingdom in real tangible terms. In real ta- and, that, and that's not a prosperity gospel. Uh, that's simply saying God actually made the world. He knows how it works. And when we follow his law, ordinarily, we will receive blessing. If we follow God's law with faith, which only a Christian can do, we will guaranteed uh, receive eternal blessing and the life to come. But ordinarily, even non-Christian people, if they obey God's law, meaning they, they, they play by the script outwardly, they can't do it by faith, but they do it outwardly, ordinarily, um, there will be some measure of tangible, physical, temporal blessing in this life. And America experienced that just like is, uh, Israel did under Solomon's reign. And so my, my whole point is you might think back when you read Isaiah chapter 2 to Solomon and Israel because the nations flocked. And one of the things that the nations say is um, is um, how amazing is your law? They drew the, the correlation. They, they made the connection that you've got all this power and prosperity and happiness um, even at the level of the servants, right? There's no Marxism here. It doesn't work because the lowest people in your kingdom are still content, right? Uh, but but they were able to draw the connection and say, this is rooted in, this is the fruit of wisdom, um, a, a divine wisdom, a, a godly wisdom. However, the problem is that Isaiah chapter two is not talking about Solomon and Israel. It's not. It can't be because it, that, that, that happened before Isaiah chapter two. He is prophesying about something that has yet to occur. He's not, he's not looking back and commentating on an event, a historical event in Israel under Solomon's reign that's already happened. He's looking to the future. And again, it says the people shall, the nations shall flow to it. This mountain that will be lifted up as the highest mountain above the hills, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. That the law of God is supreme. And, and there is a, a, there is a, a godly jealousy among the nations for the law of God because they see 
a direct correlation between the law of God, obedience to his law, and prosperity and blessing. So the house of God, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for the peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation anymore. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, that's Isaiah 2. If we cross-reference and go further to Isaiah 65, I won't read it for the sake of time because I know I'm answering your question long, but Isaiah chapter 5 talks about the same kind of imagery, the, the, the same picture. The same. It's, it's not talking about two separate events. I think it's the same event, but from two different sides of the coin. Isaiah chapter 65 talks again about this millennial kingdom where the people beat their swords into plowshares. They're, they're done with war. Nation is not rising up against nation, and all the nations have this, this recognition that the law of God lends towards blessing and prosperity and, and the mountain of the Lord is filling the whole earth. It's the highest of the mountains. They're all, the nations are flocking to God. They are, the nations are being Christianized. The nations are recognizing Christ as king and the goodness of his law word here in the earth. Isaiah 65 talks about that same picture that we saw in Isaiah chapter 2, but gives us another element of it. And one of the things that Isaiah chapter 65 says is that it says that the, um, the, the youth shall die at 100. Meaning, um, you know, we, we today would say, um, oh man, that guy, died, he died at 65. Right? He died. He was only 60. He was so young. Right. Whereas just just 150 years ago in, in our own nation, if somebody lived to be 65, nobody would be saying, oh, he was so young. He was just a youth. We would say, oh, 65 years old. He lived a, a, a good old to a good old age. He had a, a full life. So what Isaiah 65 is getting at when it says the youth shall die at 100 is that a time is coming in this this christianized millennial age this 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 christian golden age a time is coming where where even at a, a literal level that the lifespan of human beings will be lengthened to the point where a hundred will be viewed as young but here's the key the youth shall die at a hundred and then it goes on and says um and the infant will not die in childbirth i mean there's already to some great degree we'd say there's already in, in the Western world and first world countries, a great measure of fulfillment to that. People died in infancy all the time. And, and mothers died in childbirth all the time. I think that's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, um, and uh, it says that, um, that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue with faith. I, I think part of that is saying that women will be saved not, not by their works. They'll be saved by faith. But in the same way that James says, faith without works is dead. Uh, one of the chief works of a godly woman is, is motherhood, her role in motherhood and the goodness of bearing children and not embracing radical feminism. And, and so I think the Apostle Paul is saying women will be saved insofar as they obey, which for women ordinarily, part of that obedience is bearing children um, and they will be saved uh, by their obedience insofar, hear me, insofar as their obedience is an evidence of faith. And faith is what actually saves. Paul saying that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think we could also interpret that scripture, 1 Timothy 2.15, to say um, that women were terrified of childbearing. Because a lot of women died. I mean, you look at the Puritans. A lot of women died in childbearing. A lot of these Puritan guys, they had 10 kids and two of them would make it to adulthood. 
right? And eight of them would die in infancy. And so women will be saved through childbearing, not just by childbearing, by doing this godly thing that is an evidence of faith, but they'll also be saved through this terrifying event where many women die. And so we see Isaiah 65 saying, um, infants are no longer dying. And, and uh, someone who dies at 100, we would say he was just a youth. He was so young. But here's the key. People are still dying, which means it cannot be a literal thousand year millennial kingdom within the dispensational premillennial view, because in that view, death has been defeated. Christ has returned. He has destroyed all of his enemies, the last of his enemies being death. So there is no more death in the premillennial dispensational framework of the literal thousand year millennial kingdom. Nobody's dying. In, in that period. And the, the pre the dispensational pre-mill would say that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, wrongly interpreting the all of that discourse in Matthew 24, all the way up until Christ's return. So they would say there's going to be all these wars, and then Christ will return. And, and then they would say, we beat our plow, our swords into plowshares and, and our pruning hooks into spears. So now we no longer know war, but we also no longer know death because Christ has defeated death. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's this time period where the nations no longer know war and lifespans are increased, but death is not yet defeated because people do still die. For instance, the youth dying at hundred. So Daniel chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 65, the Olivet Discourse is one of the greatest proofs for partial preterism, which goes hand in glove with the post-millennial eschatology. Um, and then, of course, Revelation, just starting in Revelation chapter 1, the, the, the big idea is these things are soon to come to pass, not 2,000 years soon to come to pass. And so, um, but all the way back to Genesis and just the nature of God, character of God, how does he work? Uh, the way that God works is gradually. It's leaven in dough. It's the mustard seed growing to a tree. God creates the world. Yeah, he does it in six days, but he doesn't do it in six seconds. And there is a distinction. It's a gradual, progressive, systematic building. And that's the same way that Christ is ruling and reigning today. Got it. So, so hold on one second. I just like to give people nuggets to walk away with because there was a lot to digest there. So if they come to Isaiah 5, Isaiah 65, and the Olivet Discourse, they will Isaiah say, 2, 65, and Isaiah Matthew 2, 24. Uh, Matthew 24, Isaiah 2, and Isaiah 65. If, if they read that, and while they're studying post-millennialism, those are the three key passages that they can study to learn the entire view. Uh, I would say Daniel 2, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 65, Matthew chapter 24. Another key text, key text would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He must reign until all of his enemies are subjected under his feet, made a footstool for his feet. The last of his enemies is death. That, that's another one. If we're going to be honest, and again, I understand some people would hold this view and they're, they're going to be frustrated uh, by what I'm saying, but I'm saying it because I believe it's true. And I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be clear. There is a distinction between sometimes in our attempts to be charitable, what we actually embrace is not charity, but amb ambiguity. So I'm not trying. This is not an attempt to be harsh. It's an attempt to be clear. OK, um, like the same way I describe all millennialism is like that's harsh. It's clear. <laughs> so I, and, and there's room for debate and all those kinds of things. And I could be wrong, but I'm trying to I'm trying to communicate my viewpoint that could be wrong clearly. OK, so with premillennial dispensational premillennialism, I think you have that person has to um, admit 
um, that the last of Christ's enemies to be defeated is not death. Under the premillennial dispensational framework, the first of Christ's enemies to be defeated is death. Because the whole viewpoint is that Christ, um, the, the kingdom is going to come not slowly and gradual, gradualistically, but it's going to come soon. Most pre-mill dispensational guys uh, think, well, Christ is probably going to come back in our lifetime. Christ is probably going to come back before 2024. Christ is probably going to, you know, so typically they think soon and they certainly think suddenly. And what do they think is going to happen in real tangible terms in the earth up until Christ's return? A downward spiral. Continue. Worse, 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 worse. Meaning none of Christ's enemies like war, right? None of Christ's enemies like, like famine, like sin, <laughs> being a big one. Um, none, of, none of those enemies, um, child sex traffickers and pornography. And there, there are all these different enemies that the post-millennial believes gradualistically and systematically, slowly over time, one by one, will be made a footstool for Christ's feet. And that will progressively um, bring in, usher in this, this golden Christian age, this Christendom here on earth. And then finally, it's going to build, 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 build and climax in the final return of Christ, at which point he'll defeat death. And that will be the last of his enemies because we've systematically, Christ has been defeating his enemies through the church, right? I will build my church. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that, that Jesus will just sustain his sweet, puny little bride that's up against the ropes as hell is wailing on her. It's not, I will sustain my puny church. No, I will build my militant and triumphant church, meaning it will it will increase, it will expand. And the gates of hell, which is, it's not hell is on the offense and the church is on the defense. The gates, that's a defensive measure. The gates of hell will not withstand the battering ram of the church. Christ, who's the head of the church, is using his church in a militant and triumphant fashion as the battering ram up against the gates of hell, progressively, gradually, and slowly pushing back hell, defeating his enemies one by one, all the way up until his final return, where the final and last enemy to be defeated is death. That's all 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The dispensational premillennial would have to say that everything getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, which means Christ's enemies are not being defeated. If anything, they're being strengthened. If anything, they're being multiplied. If anything, they're growing, but then Christ will return and death will be defeated and all the other. There's, there's no systematic, this enemy first, this enemy last. It's just all of Christ's enemies at once, but that's not what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. It says he must reign and the implication is he is reigning now and during the course, progressively and gradually during the course of his reign, he is subjecting systematically and individually his enemies under his feet. Not all of them at once when he reigns, but, but all of them systematically and progressively as he reigns even now and when he returns and, and, and the, the, the culmination of his reign is realized, the last enemy, which would be so death. So. First Corinthians 15 is a key text. Are you separating sin and the other enemies? So you're saying all of those things have to be defeated in order for death to be defeated. But isn't sin the ultimate enemy? If God yes. gets rid of sin, then all those things will go away. So couldn't that be instantaneously, not gradually? If he comes back and sin is gone because he's meeting his people in the air, or however your interpretation of that passage is, if it's instant... When he comes back and there's no literal rain, isn't sin gone? And those things don't have to gradually disappear because sin will disappear. 
Totally. If we're asking the question of what could be or what has to be, um, absolutely. But that's not what I'm talking. I'm not talking about what God could do or what God has to do. I'm talking about what God will do based off of what he said in his word. Gotcha. So that's just I not what the Bible teaches. First, first Corinthians 15 ex, in explicit terms um, refutes that. It just doesn't like God could do it. Sure. Uh, but that's not what God said. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. I think uh, we were really focused on some biblical theology there, and you brought up a couple um, good points about dispensational premillennialism. I think another rebuttal I consistently hear for dispensational premill is that it's the new kid on the block. It showed up maybe in the 1900s, really got popularized in <laughs> that Dallas, is Texas. So critical. Wow, that's funny. That that's yeah. funny. Go ahead. So I, I hear that a lot about dispensational pre-mill. So I want to, I kind of want to see, is that the same case for post-mill? Is it relatively newer? Oh, or? Well, okay. You hear that about dispensational yeah, pre-mill. I thought yes. you, you hear that about post-millennialism. No, 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 no. I was no. going to say that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a degree of hypocrisy that would, that, that the devil could learn some tricks from that. <laughs> no, no. I hear that a lot about dispensational pre-mill sort of, okay. uh, cutting away at some of the authenticity there. So I was going to ask about post-millennialism, if that's also the case, if it's relatively new or if it's been sort of vindicated throughout church history and is a classically traditional view of eschatology. Yeah, good question. All right, let, let me read some more of my notes. Uh, and I appreciate you guys sending some of these questions ahead of time so that I could have some thoughts uh, written down. So here we go. Um, as far as our preserved writings go, premillennialism finds slightly earlier development. All right, so I, I don't want to straw man and I don't want to be dishonest. Um, premillennialism does find earlier development in terms of eschatology among the early church, uh, earlier than postmillennialism. So in, if you look at like uh, what, what is the, the sequence of order in terms of, of church history of, of these three primary eschatologies? And again, you it's really four because you have to bifurcate um, historic premillennialism versus dispensational premillennialism. But but what I would say and what it seems like most scholars would say, the ones that I think are being you know truthful and, and not just have an axe to grind against post mill or, or against whatever, is you got um you've got the historic pre-mill probably being the first, and then you have post mill, and then you have all mill, and and there's some room for debate that all mill and post mill maybe came at the same time or all mill maybe slightly before. But my point is it's all relatively soon. It's all on the heels of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And when I say the heels, um, I don't mean within 15 minutes, but I do mean within um, a couple hundred years, within a couple hundred years. So um, except with the exception being dispensational premillennialism, which comes on the heels of Christ, if the heels of Christ means uh, 1900 years later. <laughs> so, um, you know, you got Darby and, you, you know, dispensationalism is a radically new, phenomenon. It has no history in the church. Um, it, 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 yeah, it just, it's not rooted in, it's certainly not rooted in scripture and it's not rooted in church history. Um, it's, it's a very recent phenomenon in the last really 150 years in terms of the dispensational framework period. Um, but then the dispensational eschatology, um, uh, you could, you could date it back to 150 years at the earliest, but really has its rise in the last 70 years. A big factor of that would be Israel, 
um, becoming a nation, st- a sovereign state again, and entering land that got people real excited. And ever since that, we, we've seen a lot of biblical prophecy. You know, um, not saying it actually is biblical, but uh, the, the Bible says this, and it's happening now. This comet is going across. You know, and that's that's a fulfillment of this. And so, um, all, all those things being said, but uh, so dispensational pre mill. Uh, uh, Take that out of the equation and and just consider the the three eschatologies that actually have merit because dispensational premium, it doesn't. And we need to start saying that as the church. We need to say that this is not even not only is it wrong, it's it's um, it's it's really wrong. It's shamefully wrong. It's it's and it's harmed. It's harmed the church. Uh, it really has. It's harmed our witness. It's har- It's it's. Um, I think lent towards impotency in the church, apathy in the church. I think it's a major factor uh, and motivation for why we're, we're in the place we are right now as American Christians. That we've surrendered so many institutions. Um, so, so I won't. I won't even um, validate dispensational um, eschatology with 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 any dignity because it doesn't deserve it. But the three uh, positions that, that do have some merit: historic premillennialism all millennialism and post-millennialism, um, all three of these are on the heels of Christ within 200 years. That said, let the record state historic premillennialism wins the race, not not by a thousand years or anything like that, but by about a hundred years or so, you first have that and you have it um, specifically with Irenaeus. Uh, that would be AD 130, his life would be AD 130 to AD 202. And he was uh, very clearly historic pre-mill. Um, yet, um, we see uh, that post-millennialism was already anticipated in the church father uh, uh, Eusebius um, of uh, Caesarea, uh, and that would be his lifespan, AD 260 to AD 340. Um, and then you also see, uh, let me see, uh, Philip Schaeff, a historian, uh, traces uh, post-millennialism back even further, observing that um, origin, um, 80, uh, 185 to 254, uh, here's a quote, expected that Christianity by continual growth would gain the dominion over the world. That was a clear view of um, uh, origin or origin um, in AD 185 through 254. So that would be comparing that with Arrhenius, uh, who was uh, historic pre-mill, AD 130 to uh, AD 202. Origin is AD uh, 185 to AD 254. And then two other prominent guys that, that I think, w- which would be later, but that we see a post-millennial view. And again, there's some debate. Some all-mill guys would push back on this, um, but but the pre uh, historic pre-mill guys can't claim them. It's either post-mill or all-mill, and I think it's post-mill, but would be Augustine and Athanasius. Um, so, so let me read just a little bit more. Two other prominent church fathers whose historical confidence appears to express um, a post-millennial view is Athanasius, which would be AD 296 to 372, and Augustine, AD 354 to AD 430. These are giants of Christian orthodoxy. Um, consider one statement from Athanasius. He says this, the gospel's great progress is expected according to Athanasius. I'm sorry, this isn't a quote. The gospel's great progress is expected according to Athanasius's view of scripture, um, primarily the text of Isaiah 11, verse 9, Matthew 28, verse 19, and John chapter 6, verse 44. Um, and then from Dan to Beersheba, this is a quote now, and then from Dan to Beersheba was the law proclaimed, and in Judea, only was God known, but now unto all the earth has gone forth their voice, and all the earth has been filled with the knowledge of God, and the disciples have been 
uh, have made disciples of all the nations, and now is fulfilled what is written, they shall all be taught of God. That's Athanasius in his four discourses against the Arians, uh, the Arians, um, and uh, and then to, to get Augustine in here, um, Augustine uh, teaches that history would be marked by the ever-increasing influence of the church in overturning evil in the world before the Lord's return. Uh, this would eventually issue forth in a future rest of the saints on earth. That's a quote from Augustine's sermon, uh, one of his sermons, when the church will be purged of all the wicked elements now mixed among its members, wheat and tear kind of idea, mixed among uh, its members, and Christ will rule peacefully in its midst. That's another quote from Augustine. Um, and uh, let's see, little bit more. We uh, may also reference Augustine's comments on Psalm chapter 2 regarding the Lord laughing at the nations, mocking the nations. He writes this, it is, this is Augustine, it is to be understood of that power which he giveth to his saints that they seeing things to come, namely that the name of the rule of Christ is to pervade posterity and possess all nations. And then Psalm 2 verse 7, Augustine writes, ask of me, maybe refer to all this temporal dispensation, that just means time period, not dispensationalism, um, this temporal dispensation, uh, which has been instituted for mankind, namely that the nations should be joined to the name of Christ and so be redeemed from death and possessed by God. I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, which so possesses them for their salvation and to bear unto thee spiritual fruit. That's Augustine and the post-Nicene fathers. Um, so that, that's some evidence. So again, origin would be the earliest, but you have then Athanasius, and then you have Augustine. These are three titans within church history and origin coming after Irenaeus, who would be historic pre-mill, but only by about 50 years. I, I want to stop you right there. I, I appreciate all the support you've just given us. But in the previous question, you made a bold claim, and, and it's all about clarity here. I want to make sure that we speak on this a little bit. Um, so you said that you won't consider dispensational eschatology in the mix as... As, uh, as legitimate. As legitimate, right? That's right. So does that mean there's some prolific, respected teachers that that hold to dispensational eschatology? Mm -hmm. Are you are you making the claim that they're false teachers or heretics? No, no. I'm saying, but I'm saying that they are wrong and terribly wrong in that one arena of their doctrine. That doesn't make them a heretic, and it doesn't make them wrong in all arenas of doctrine. And I'll just go ahead and name him, John MacArthur. That's who we're thinking about. John MacArthur, for the record, number one, he's a leaky dispensationalist. So he's not as bad as Darby or some, you know, he's not like John Hagee or something like that. John MacArthur is his his view of dispensationalism. He's a leaky dispensation. He's not chopping up the Bible uh, nearly as drastically as, as a true blue dispensationalist would. Um, if he was doing that, that now that would um, leak in, seep into some of his other doctrines. But the reason why his dispensationalism doesn't seep in and poison uh, his other doctrines like, like Calvinism and, and, and the tulip and just his, his pure, unadulterated, um, beautiful preaching of the gospel um, is because he's not a dispensationalist fully. He's a leaky dispensationalist, but he is dispensational enough to embrace a, a kind of a, a dispensational premillennialism. And on that point, John MacArthur, who is an amazing brother in Christ, who I have much to learn from, he's really wrong in that area. Not a heretic and not wrong in all areas. I think the church a thousand years from now, 
uh, because I do think that it's likely Jesus will tarry for thousands of years. I, I think, as Doug Wilson and others have said, that people will look back one day and say that we were actually still part of the, the early church. And that, you know, in the first few hundred years, the church, the big things that it had to iron out was uh, who's Jesus, right? The hypostatic union. Full, is he fully God and fully man? And how does that work? Or is he half God and half man? Or was he just an apparition, right? We have to deal with docetism and Arianism and all these different things, the Eutychian heresy, the Storian heresy. Um, and, and so the first few hundred years is really de dealing with theology proper, doctrine of God. Um, eschatology in terms of, 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 of theological triage and priority is just lower on the list. Um, but I do think that, that people will look back one day and say um, that we were still within the, the ramifications of, of what they will consider to be the early church. And the early, early church was dealing with doctrine of God, first few hundred years. And then the still early church, but not quite as early, was dealing with things like eschatology in the first couple thousand of years. And I think they'll look back on someone like John MacArthur, specifically even, look back on John MacArthur. I think he'll be remembered for hundreds, if not thousands of years by the church, and he will be heralded as a great preacher of the word, but also as a man of his time as a man of his time, who preached the word faithfully and for 52 years stood up against progressivism and liberal uh, theologians who wanted to say that Jesus was the bastard son of a whore, these kinds of things. He dealt with, he, he was in the trenches and leading the leading architect um, against the battle for inerrancy, him and Sproul back to back, these kinds of things. And they'll say, man, MacArthur, Sproul couldn't have done it without MacArthur, but by golly, Sproul was right about eschatology. MacArthur was wrong. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Uh, MacArthur's obviously a, a hero to the faith in, in all of us. Amen. Um, so I kind of want to stay in the same vein of church history a bit. And before I ask the question, I want to preface it because I want to make sure I don't misrepresent post-millennialism as I know very little about post-millennialism, to be honest. Um, so the preface is what I understand is that post-millennialism takes revelation as having been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Right. Um, so, so, so that's preterism. And, and, but you're right. Like people say, well, post-millennials believe this, but to, to be technical, that's, so that's preterism. Preterism, uh, preterist, the Latin word, it just means past. And so, yes, post-mill, I, I don't really know any, po I guess it's possible, but I don't, I don't know any post-millennial uh, guy who is not also a preterist, but with that view of preterist, meaning that, that, that we look at certain biblical prophecies and see them as being in the future of the immediate audience that the scripture was written to, but in our past, right? So John's writing Revelation to, to these seven churches and to, you know, to faithful Christians who are dispersed in all these different um, areas. And for them, John is writing prophecy. These things are yet to be fulfilled, but we would say uh, that, that in, in human history where we now live, um, our place in history, that these things are past. So preterist means past. Uh, that said, um, uh, orthodox post-millennial guys are preterist, but they are, we, we, you know, this is technical, but they are partial preterists, meaning um, they do not, and I do not, as a partial preterist, believe that all prophecy in scripture is fulfilled, including the book of Revelation. We would say that uh, the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation are still in our future, yet to be fulfilled. Um, speaking about a final return of Christ, but much of Revelation, the, the majority, um, is in our past. To John's audience, it was in their future, but for us, in our past. Got it. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So that's perfect. I didn't want to misrepresent the view there. So um, getting into rebuttals of postmillennialism, one of the biggest ones that I've heard is that most of the early church fathers have confirmed that Revelation was actually written close to 90 
AD and the destruction was in 70 AD. So how do how do postmillennialists deal with that, that that so many church fathers seem to place the date of writing in, in 90 AD? Yeah, great question. Um, but short answer is we just we, we, we would say they're wrong. The longer answer, um, I've got some things that I've written down, so I'll read. Uh, first, if the Apostle John were indeed writing in AD 95, that's probably one of the most popular, but yeah, AD 90, AD 95, uh, long after the destruction of the temple, it seems incredible that he would make no mention whatsoever of the most apocalyptic event in Jewish history, the demolition of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple at the hands of Titus, Emperor Titus. Imagine writing the history of New York today, the city of New York today, and making no mention of the destruction of the Twin Towers or the world of the World Trade Center at the hands of terrorists on September 11th, 2001. Or more directly, imagine writing a thesis on uh, the future of terrorism in America and failing to mention the Manhattan Massacre. Consider another parallel. Imagine that you are reading a history concerning Jewish struggles in Nazi Germany and find no mention whatsoever of the Holocaust. Continuing reading, consider one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. Jesus is leaving the temple when his disciples call his attention to its buildings. As they gaze upon its massive stones and magnificent buildings, Jesus utters the unthinkable. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's Matthew 24, verse 2, leading up to the all of that discourse. Also Mark 13, 2, Luke 21, 6. One generation later, this prophecy, no doubt still emblazoned on the tablet of their consciences, became a vivid and horrifying reality. It's fulfilled. As noted by the great Jewish historian Josephus, the temple was doomed August 30th, AD 70, the very day, the very day on which the former temple had been destroyed by the king of Babylon. As incredible as Christ's prophecy and its fulfillment one generation later are, it is equally incredible to suppose that the Apostle John would make no mention of it. As the student of Scripture well knows, New Testament writers were quick to highlight fulfilled prophecy. The phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, so-and-so. This was to fulfill what the, was spoken by the other prophet, so-and-so, permeates all the pages of Scripture. All right, another, another thing, almost done. In Revelation chapter 11, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple, which is AD 95, the temple's gone. It didn't exist. Yeah. Or they're wrong. <laughs> That's the other alternative. So in Revelation chapter 11, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. And they would just say, oh, well, that's, that's that's heaven. It's talking about a heavenly temple. It's not, it's, it's, it's different. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. Wait a second. That doesn't sound like heaven. In, in heaven, right? Is there a temple in heaven? Could we use that kind of language and alter that? Sure. That could be a spiritual heavenly temple, those kinds of things. But, but the problem is that, that John's being told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar, but to exclude in his measurement the outer court of the temple, which belongs, is given to the Gentiles. Do, do we have other scripture that would talk about um, not, not an earthly under, under the old covenant dispensation of Israel, but, but this uh, that, that in heaven, in heaven, there will be a separation of Gentiles in one portion of heaven over here and Israelites over here, and, and that there will be a heavenly temple um, but it'll still have the outer court. So John's being told, measure the temple and its altar, but exclude 
It's not saying, uh, but don't measure the outer court because uh, because the outer court doesn't even exist. No, he's being told to exclude, in his measurement of the temple, exclude the outer court, uh, which implies the outer court is there. And if it wasn't there, 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 there would be no need for the instruction to exclude it. He's being told in his measurement of this temple and the altar to exclude the outer court because the outer court is still there. But again, if, if we're talking about heavenly temple, then, then we'd have to say in heaven, there's a temple and there's also an outer court, which is the uh, the quarantine section for Gentiles, separate for that. That's just we don't we don't have any reality of that. It just that's, it's just unbiblical. So, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty two months. It's talking. It's talking about Earth. Um, all that Revelation chapter 11. In context, Jesus has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Thus, the prophecy concerns a future event, future in their history, in their placement, past, preterist, being fulfilled in ours. Um, not one that took place. Uh, so he's he's giving a prophecy concerning a future event for them, not a prophecy uh, that took place 25 years earlier. So John is not commenting on a historical event that is non-prophecy. It's just an event that has already been fulfilled. It was a prophecy for Jesus, right? Jesus prophesying about something 40 years in advance. But for John, if he's writing in 1895, 25 years in his past. And, and again, that, that would be all over the pages of, of, of these New Testament books of the Bible, like the book of Hebrews, Right. A lot of guys want to say Hebrews was written, you know, later on. To, no, I think Hebrews was 8064 between 8064 and 8069, probably around 8067, 68, a couple years. And I think that's part of the way. And this changes, man. I'm telling you, this changes your framework. Postmillennialism has has complemented my Calvinism, my soteriology in such a profound way versus that, that I had an answer for within my reformed framework of soteriology as a Calvinist, I had an answer for it before, but, but I have such a more satisfying answer for now. So like Hebrews chapter 10, right. And, and Hebrews chapter six, right. Presbyterians get real excited because it's like, Oh, well there, you know, there are, there are blessings and curses under the new covenant and you can be in the new covenant, but not saved. Right. For me as a 1689 reformed Baptist, um, the entrance to the new covenant is faith. And, and, and what makes the, the new covenant in comparison with the old covenant, it's not just the new covenant is wider, it's deeper. It's not just bigger, it's better. It's founded upon better promises. And one of those chief better promises uh, that makes the new covenant better than the old covenant is it, it has a 100% retention rate. Everyone in the new covenant is saved and not one will be lost. Um, and so, so then, okay, that's, that's fine. That's the, that's, that's a reformed Baptist, you know, view of the, of covenant theology, 1689 federalism. But how does that function with Hebrews six and Hebrews 10? Well, one of the ways that it functions is if you date the book of Hebrews at like 80, 67, 68, before 87, the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. And then you look at something like Hebrews 10 that says, um, that don't turn back. Right. It's Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. There's types and shadows, but he is the substance from shadow to substance. Christ is all you don't need to go back to the temple. Well, um, because if you do, all that awaits is fiery judgment is, is what Hebrews 10 talks about. And Hebrews six gives the same kind of concept that doesn't use the term fiery judgment judgment. But that's in Hebrews chapter 10. Well, the, the Reformed Presbyterian Westminster covenantalism is going to say um, that there's blessings and curses within the new covenant. Not everyone in the new covenant is is the um, decretal elect. There's there's this bifurcation. There's 
people who are kind of elect and, and then really elect, all within the banner of the New Covenant. Um, as a Reformed Baptist with the 1689 covenantalism, I'm going to say everyone in the New Covenant is the elect, the, the only elect, the saved elect, the actual elect. Um, so there are no curses for those in the New Covenant. That's precisely what makes it better. Um, so so what, what the apostle, and I do believe it's Paul, but what the apostle to the Hebrews is saying is this. He's saying, if you abandon Christ, number one, First John chapter two, they went out from us because they were never among us. So if you go out from Christ, you were never in the new covenant and you were never saved. Um, you, you didn't lose your salvation. It's just proof you never had it. But if you go back, it's not just a spiritual abandonment of Christ going back to the priestly sacrificial system, but no fire and judgment awaits you there in literal terms because you're going back to Jerusalem and and Jesus' prophecy in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 is about to be fulfilled because he said... He said that this will happen in this generation. And here we are. It's a pro in, in the Jewish view, a generation, 40 years. It's approximately 40 years from when Jesus made this prophecy in the Olivet Discourse with his disciples in Matthew 24. This is about to go down. So not only will you be abandoning the gospel and abandoning Christ and putting your soul in eternal eternal jeopardy, but you even physically, your body will be in jeopardy. You go back to Jerusalem, that, that thing's about to be set on fire. Um, it's about to be literally uh, destroyed. And so all that being said, uh, if, if, if Hebrews, if Revelation, if, um, if these books of the Bible were written post AD 70, like it, it, they would be bragging and not, not like a carnal boasting pride, but bragging upon uh, the Lord. And that the Lord keeps steadfast covenant, that the Lord fulfills his promises, that the Lord fulfills prophecy. This was a massive prophecy. Jesus, I mean, think about it. The, the Pharisees had a field day making fun of Jesus. And, 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 and not just, well, he said this, or he said that. One of the main things the Pharisees mock Jesus about is his prophecy in regards to the temple, that it would be destroyed. Right? And now Jesus, on one hand, and we have to bifurcate it, Jesus was talking about his own body, right? This temple will be destroyed in three days. I will raise it again, right? And he's talking about his crucifixion and resurrection on the third day. But Jesus also specifically talks about the, the, the actual temple, Solomon's temple, in but rebuilt in Jerusalem. And they, they mock him that, that it's going to be destroyed. Um, if these guys were writing after AD 70, I, I'm telling you, it would be in every chapter. They'd be like... Um, and for all the naysayers, for all the haters out there, remember Jesus said this and it happened. But the, wh where is it? Where, the, like, when does scripture miss an opportunity? When do the authors of scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, miss an opportunity uh, to point out past prophecies that have been fulfilled? And this is to fulfill the prophecy given by so-and-so. And this is to fulfill the prophecy. Where is it? It's not in Revelation. It's not in Hebrews. Um, and, and that would be massive. One, and there are others, but that would be one massive piece of evidence uh, for dating them pre-80-70. I think that's a great argument, actually. Um, Thanks. But <clears throat> to kind of wrap things up, because we are going long, I know I wanted to ask you about the state of the world, um, but I think you're going to hit that anyway, asking about me asking about the anomie. And you kind of hit on it earlier, because you said that you think that we're going to be like, we're going to be considered like the early church because you don't think Christ is going to come back for thousands of years or whatever. Um, so I think that buys it time to become more Christ glorifying. So you kind of hit on it, but you can, you can answer to it if you want in the next question. What is theonomy? Is it biblical? And what is the relationship between theonomy and post-millennialism? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, theos, theo, namos. Um, it's just two words, Latin words. One, one means God, one means law. So theonomy just means God's law. Um, and, and I would argue that, that every genuine born again, you know, not just a, a um, professing Christian, but every genuinely regenerate Christian is theonomic. Again, just like with eschatology, I said, you know, it's not just that there are three views or technically four when you bifurcate, you know, dispensational versus historic prima. Um, but it's not just four views of eschatology, but it's 4,000 views. Because within each of those four views, there, there's a sliding scale, a spectrum of, of variance and, and sub views within that view. And why I differ with it's like that with postmillennialism. Um, and it is certainly, oh my goodness, it's certainly like that with theonomy. You've got, you know, Rush Dooney and Gary North and Greg Bonson and Gary DeMar. And, you know, you've got all these guys disagreeing with each other. Now, I think that their disagreements at, in, a, in a broad view are, are somewhat minimal. Um, but, but there are certain elements that are significant. So anyway, so my point is, I think the first thing with theonomy is it's just, it's, um, it's a charged word. It just, it scares people. It just does. What, what is it? Why does it scare people? No, I'm saying, what is it? I God's law. A clear definition. Theonomy is God's law. That's, that's all it means. Theonomy means God's law. And like Rush Dooney said, it's not whether, but which, right? So at the end of the day, remember that this was real popular. Boomers love this. Um, you can't legislate morality. Uh, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Right. So uh, a million abortions each year for the last 49 years, up until finally the overturning of Roe. Uh, we're still going to see plenty of abortion. There's still a lot of work to do in abolishing abortion. Uh, but I do think in real terms, we're going to see that number drop. You're going to have abortion sanctuary states, which that's I mean, that's like an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, you know, like but, uh, a sanctuary state for. And, and what makes it a sanctuary state? Um, it's a place where you can kill people. You know, but you're so you're going to see people flying over on California taxpayer dime, right? So Christians in California are going to be paying not only for the abortions committed by their residents, but also um, uh, some some 15 year old girl in Oklahoma who's going to get on a plane, and fly over there, and her and if Gavin Newsom gets his way, and this will probably happen, um, her her travel, her lodging, the procedure, all those things are going to be paid by again Christians in in California, which is one of the reasons why I left. But all that being said. Uh, my point is, there's still going to be a lot of abortions. I think there'll be less. But the big idea is this. For, for almost 50 years, you've got, uh, on average, sometimes more, sometimes less, but about a million abortions each year. And that doesn't even account for early abortions with pills and potions and those kinds of This is just the procedure going to an abortion clinic, a million a year. Um, but you average, in recent years, you average, uh, in America, 330 million people, 16,000 homicides, meaning murder of those who have already been born. So you've got, and just for anybody who's not a math whiz, uh, those, those are radically different numbers. 1,016,000. One of those numbers is a lot bigger than the other number. So you've got a million murders of the unborn annually, as an average, and 16,000 murders of those who are, are already born, the postborn annually. 1,016,000. Why the disparity? Well, perhaps... People with totally depraved hearts tend to gravitate towards whatever form of sin is legal, right? That, that's the second use of the, the law. This is just confession. This isn't like, this isn't even Gary North, Rush Dooney, Greg Bonson kind of, this is literally just, if, if you are a confessionally reformed Christian 
and you adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689. The teaching on the law is this, that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ and abrogated. The moral law, being the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God is eternal. It's been fulfilled by Christ. That's the only reason we have salvation. That's the active obedience of Christ. His passive obedience, he died under the wrath of God, uh, atoning for our sin. The Lamb of God takes away the, the sin of the world. That's the, the heart of the gospel, penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for you. It's important, though, that Christians recognize that in the gospel, Jesus didn't just die for you as your substitute. He lived for you as your substitute. That's John Owen, act of obedience. Jesus, he didn't just, um, he wasn't just sinless. He, did, he didn't just um, avoid all temptation, all sin. Uh, but but there, there was not just an absence of sin, but a presence of righteousness. John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness. That's what's said of Jesus. So in his act of obedience, in his life, his substitutionary life, not just substitutionary death, but but he, he lived in our place. And what did he do in his life? He fulfilled all righteousness, meaning he perfectly kept every single portion, every jot and tittle of the law. So Jesus fulfilled all three divisions of the law, moral, ceremonial, and civil. He fulfilled them all. But but the question is not, not which portions of the law did Jesus fulfill. If we want to be technical and accurate in our theological language, we should ask the question, which portions of the law did he abrogate, right? And and, and what he abrogated was the ceremonial portions of the law. And and guys like Rush Jr., those guys would say, well, even in a sense, even that's not abrogated. It's just that it's perfectly fulfilled, right? The high priest in Israel on the day of atonement, one day a year would go into the Holy of Holies. They tie a bell on his ankle, right? In case he fell down de dead, they wanted to hear and they, they'd have a rope and be able to drag him out. But he would go in and he would make atonement for his own sin and the sins of the people one day a year. And then there were plenty of other feasts and different sacrifices and grain offerings and dove offerings throughout the course of Israel's you know calendar year. But there was this big one day of atonement. And the problem is this day of atonement was annual. Right. It, it reminds me of uh, when I was in Acts 29. Right. We, we would annually uh, repent of, of the same sin that we weren't committing, namely the sin of, of racism. And we'd talk about racial reconciliation, <laughs> you know, my, back in my CRT days, you know, when I was uh, uh, with Matt Chandler. So, you know, I said that. So, you know, when we, we would just it, but it was just like it was the old covenant. Right. It was penance. It wasn't repentance. It was do penance. Right. And, and it was and it had to be done every year, every, every year, because because within the woke gospel, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no lasting atonement. Um, so you have to atone every year. You, you do it with 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 an annual conference, just like Israel did with the day of atonement, and the high priest and those kinds of things. And so um, but but the deal is with Jesus. He's not only our, our forever high priest, not in the order of Aaron, uh, but in the order of Melchizedek, um, a king and a priest, by, by the way. Uh, but but also Jesus is not only the priest, forever priest, but he's also the final sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's a sense in which even the ceremonial law, um, it's not even just that it's abrogated. It's just uh, the ceremonial law still stands in, in a sense. In one sense, we can say the ceremonial law still stand, stands, but it has been perpetually and eternally um, done. It's fulfilled. Me meaning the reason why we, we don't still have sacrifices isn't because God doesn't care about being clean. Ceremonial law, it's, it's the cleansing rituals, it's the dietary laws, but all of it, whether it's what food goes into your body or, or hand washings, you know, or, or all these things, animal sacrifices, purification through blood, um, all these things. It's not that God was one way and now he's, he's changed. Behold, I am the Lord, I changeth not. God cares about cleans, cleansing. Everything is purified by blood. 
As Hebrews says, that almost everything is purified by blood. Um, and there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. This is all Hebrews chapter 9. Um, and so it's not that God doesn't care about his people being cleansed anymore. It's just that his people have, have been cleansed in such a way by Christ, the better high priest and the better sacrifice, that, that, that the ritual never has to be performed again. That, that's why we don't do it. It's not because God doesn't care anymore. It's because it's been done so perfectly and so finally in Christ that it doesn't need to be done again. So that brings into question, that's the ceremonial law, the moral and the civil law. Um, the moral law is eternal. Meaning, um, you know, eons and eons from now, when we're all in heaven, um, it's still not going to be okay to, to murder someone. It's never going to be okay to murder. Um, and so you have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. That's, that's what theologians refer. And again, all this is just, this is 101 confessional reformed theology, Westminster, 1689. Um, so then the last question is, what about all the civil codes, right? Because you got Ten Commandments, but then, you, you know, and we would say that's summary law. Um, but then you have case law, all these different individual codes, and you have hundreds of those given to Israel. Um, at, are, are those still for us today? Or is that unique to the nation state of Israel under this old covenant uh, dispensation? And we would say um, what, what the Westminster says and the 1689 is, is that the civil law, um, it has been abrogated, done away with. It was unique to Israel. However, and it gives this disclaimer, however, it's general equity remaining. And so that's where you'll hear guys like, you know, Jeff Durbin and James White and Doug Wilson and, uh, you know, Gary DeMar. And uh, you, you'll hear these guys talk about Joe, Joe Boot, um, uh, general equity theonomist, general equity theonomist. And what they're saying is this. Um, every guy, even guys who hate theonomy, um, would, would st if they're confessionally reformed, they would still say, yeah, but the moral law is different. The Ten Commandments that's written on the hearts of men, even the hearts of Gentiles is not just given to Christian people, but to all people. That's what Rom Romans 1 is natural revelation, but Romans 2 is natural law. And, and I don't mean natural law in the way that John Locke and, you know, Unitarians and deists use it, but I mean natural law as synonymous with moral law, the Ten Commandments written on the hearts of men, to where Gentiles, even if they never received um, an ounce of special revelation, a prophet or a page of the Bible or a preacher or an evangelist, they would still be rightly and justly condemned by God because they knew, they knew their own conscience testified against them. They did certain things um, that, that, that didn't even meet, much less God's standard, it, it didn't meet God's standard even as God's standard was written on their hearts. And, and so uh, natural law or moral law, the Ten Commandments, that's eternal. Um, it's for all, and it's not just for, for church people, it's for all people in all places in all time. Uh, the question is, and the ceremonial is, in a sense, eternal too, but it's been perfectly and finally fulfilled by Christ. So so it's like God's standards for cleansings actually still stand to this day. The the, the, the issue is that um, that that I I am clean. That That's the issue. I am clean, right? It's like, well, you, you need to go and, and, and wash your hands, uh, you know, th this many times, and you need to... No, not like Christ, uh, Christ uh, has washed me in his blood. Um, Christ is the perfect lamb of God. Christ is my perfect high priest. Uh, Christ is interceding at the right hand of the father, even now on my behalf. Um, so, so all these things, these standards apply. God doesn't change. That's the idea. Behold, I am the Lord. I changeth not so that you, the sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the immutability of the nature of God. And he doesn't change. The ceremonial has simply just been done 
finally and perfectly to where it never needs to be redone. The, the moral law of God is eternal, and it's not just for some people, but all people. The civil law of God, what we're saying there is, is the civil law of God does still apply insofar as we get down to the moral law within it. There, the, the civil law is simply case law, uh, and, and it's all on the blueprints, the general equity of the moral law. So like, uh, you know, a, a border around your house, right? That, that's a civil code given to Israel. You guys are is one of the most popular examples. I'm sure you're familiar, right? Because people would sleep on the roofs during certain summer months in Israel when it was hotter because they don't have HVAC. They're sleeping on the roofs and people could fall off. Um, now, again, they didn't have a policing system in Israel. Uh, they did, so it wasn't preventative. It wasn't like Minority Report with Tom Cruise, which is, it's scary, but that's kind of like, you know, where our, our nation is heading, you know, but, um, but no, it was, it was um, penalties. Um, so it wasn't like, we're going to go around and inspect and see if your roofs have this. Uh, no, uh, you should have it. It's God's law. Uh, it, it's a sin if you don't have it, but it's not a crime. And there's a distinction between sins and crimes. Um, it becomes a crime if you don't have it and somebody rolls off your roof and, and injures themselves. But, but we'll say, okay, well, that's Israel, you know? Um, okay. Uh, in America, 2000 years later, f- find me a two story house with a balcony and no railing. Right. We, we still do these things, right? F- find, find me a highway um, that, that's actually not in the middle of nowhere, you know, but, but a, a busy highway with, with no speed limit. Find, you see my point? My point is, what, what is the general equity of the, of the precipice on the roof idea? The general equity is found in the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, which, which to state that, that's the negative, to state it in the positive is, uh, thou shalt esteem and defend and protect human life because they're created in the image of God. Thou shalt not do any harm, intentional harm to your neighbor. And that gives you civil codes about uh, if an ox is accustomed to gore, right? Exodus chapter 21 talks about this. Um, and, and the man does not build a fence to hem it in and it gets out and it kills him. Then, then that man is put to death, right? Because, well, he, he didn't go, and, but, but he had an ox that was accustomed to goring. And instead of putting the ox down, he decided to keep it, but he didn't keep it well. He didn't do his due diligence and hem it in with, with a fence. So whether it's a, a border on your roof or whether uh, it's a fence with your ox or all these different civil codes, um, it's not a one-to-one ratio. This is what I'm saying. The moral law is a one-to-one ratio from the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20 to, to an American in 2022, to someone in Brazil in 2022. It's a one-to-one ratio. No variance. With the civil code, what you have to do is instead of a one-step uh, process, it's a two-step process. You go from the civil code given to the nation state of Israel under the old covenant, and step one is you track it back to the bedrock, which is the Ten Commandments. It's general equity. This civil code is not arbitrary. Part of it, again, all this deals with the character of God. Do we think that God is arbitrary? Uh, do we think all these cleansing rituals are just arbitrary? Or is there a purpose? And I would say there's a twofold purpose. One, God actually cares about his people being clean. He's thrice holy and he demands it. Two, all these ceremonial laws are types and shadows meant to 
point towards Christ. God cares about his beloved, the Christ, and he wants us to see Christ. But that's the ceremonial law. But even with the civil law, God cares about these things. He gave civil law to Israel, not to just hem them in and to rob them of their fun with all these different regulations, uh, but because each of these regulations uh, in its bedrock under the surface had a general equity of something that is transcendently and eternally and universally moral, namely one of the Ten Commandments. And so what we do is a two-step process. We look at the civil codes of Israel. We track it back to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the general equity, and then we apply that with wisdom as much as we can following the scripture in our place and time today. That's general equity theonomy. That is confessional. That's exactly what the Westminster Confession says, and that is what the 1689 says. And, and so that's when I say I'm a theonomist, that, that's, that's what I mean. Got it. <laughs> I think that that's, you know, Pastor Wayman, you, you have really come prepared, I think. And uh, you gave us some really thorough answers For with sure. some really good examples, uh, I think, that apply to us in our time as well. Um, Can I read just one more thing real quick? Go for it. I, I think this is so interesting. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 23, Section 3. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments. So that's another important disclaimer. Theonomy does not mean that, that um, you, you, could, you might find some, but again, there's variance and, and a spectrum. But, but for myself, for Doug Wilson, for Jeff Durbin, we believe in a separation of church and state. What the theonomist outright rejects is a separation of Christ and state, which is what most libertarian, squishy, neocon, evangelical fish people believe. When they say oh, separation of church and state, what they mean is that the public square is a neutral zone and that, and that our faith should not be applied. There's a dynamic difference between the separation of church and state as two independent autonomous sovereign spheres, right, Kyperianism, versus a separation of Christ and state. Right? So even like when Jesus says, you know, was it right for us to pay taxes? And this is in an oppressive government, not as oppressive as ours. Um, Caesar did not demand even anywhere near the amount of taxes that, that our government currently does today. And, and we're not even aware of, of how oppressive it is, how much of our percentage of our income goes to taxes. But um, in, in that time, is it right for us to give um, taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, render unto Caesar, right? What is Caesar's? Render unto God what is God's. But implicitly, what a lot of Christians um, uh, eisegete into the text right there is they say, well, um, Jesus, even Jesus says, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and then what they eisegete is this. They say, and Caesar gets to decide what is Caesar's. No. Jesus says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? And the implication is, and God sets the boundaries for what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to him, right? And so, um, because Caesar is God's deacon, separation of church and state as two sovereign spheres, yes and amen. Separation of Christ and state, no. Caesar works for Christ. Caesar works for God. That's Romans 13. He's God's deacon, God's servant. And so, all, all that being said, the civil magistrate, um, the state and the church are two separate spheres. And so in that, the Westminster Confession says the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the duty or the administration of the word and sacraments. That's been given to the church, not to the state. In the same way, the church uh, does not have the right to bear the sword and to put criminals to death. They hand them over to the state. 
right? So the civil magistrate cannot assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom to bind and, and to loose, to excommunicate, hand people over to Satan, church membership, those kinds of things, Matthew 18 and Matthew 16. Yet he, talking about the state right now, he has authority and it is his obligation, duty, to take order that unity and peace be preserved, not just in society, but in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire. This is the state's duty, according to the Westminster Confession, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. That's the duty of Caesar, not, not, not the church, not the elders, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is, is not only the authority, the right, but also the responsibility and duty of the state. The state has a responsibility to discipline blasphemy. And here's the deal. Back to Rush duty. It's, it's always been this way. It's not whether, but which. Every single state, every society and culture, and downstream from that, it's politic, it's public affairs, it's governance. Every single nation in every single time period, it's going to have a reigning orthodoxy, a religion. And every religion has sacraments. The, the, the religion of secularism, which is a religion, its sacraments are abortion. Its sacraments are transgenderism. Its sacraments is sodomy. Its sacraments is chopping off your, your genital parts and, and transing children and drag queen story hour. The, these are, this is its liturgy. This is its sacrament. And, and also, conversely, every single religion, it has a reigning orthodoxy and everything that, that contradicts or is outside of that orthodoxy is blasphemy. Every religion has blasphemy codes. So for us to say, well, I, you know, I don't want, I don't want uh, a theonomic, you know, uh, a Christianized America because what's going to happen to the Muslims? Okay, well, well here's my question. Uh, what, what's happening? What's happening to the Christians right now? Secularism is, it has sold us one of the biggest lies that the evangelical church has ever bought, and that's the myth of neutrality. Secularism is a religion. It has an orthodoxy, and it has blasphemy laws. What do you think cancel culture is? Cancel culture is punishing people for blasphemy, for saying things that are outside of the status quo, outside of, of approved speech by, by a totalitarian regime, and and. That's and it, it, we are already there. And at Canada, oh my goodness, it's it's hate speech to preach the gospel now. Conversion therapy, these kinds of things, like uh, Bill, what was it, Bill C four? You know all these things. So my my final thing that I'm saying with this is uh, that's the Westminster Confession that I just read to you, saying that the state doesn't get to to preach the word and doesn't get to administer the sacraments or exercise the keys of the kingdom and and keep the books of church membership, uh, but the state does have a duty to govern its society in such a way that the purity of Christian doctrine is esteemed. Because if you don't have a Christian state and you have a secular state, then, then what you have is, is atheism, right? The national religion of America right now is atheism. And, and that, that's a religion. It's taught in our schools with evolution, all these different, and, and it bears fruit. And, and, and my
my my whole point is that Christ, I think we need to reusher in Christendom. And and has Christian Christ, Christendom failed in certain aspects, right? The Spanish Crusades, sure. There, there were bugs, but I don't think those were features. And I think the solution is not to back off of Christendom and Christianizing the nations, and uh, but but the solution is to usher in Christendom 2.0, to do it again um, and to do it better. Because even Christendom 1.0 under Constantine and these kinds of things, uh, we have had this before. Even in that, the, the, the people who win the war get to write the history books. So all the atheists and agnostics and secularists, they, they talk the dark ages. And then there, there was the Enlightenment. What, what's this Enlightenment? That sounds like a really positive thing. Oh, that's when people cast off the rule of God and became rebellious against all things Christian. Oh, that's the Enlightenment? And what were the dark ages? Oh, that's when people believed in a transcendent universal truth that came from the Bible that governed all of human life. Think about that. Don't, don't read the history books. With, with with just um uh, uh you know just just hook line and sinker taking everything as assuming that it's true Th think about that we've had Christendom in the past did it have problems yes but but my point is this Christendom on its worst day can't even come close to putting up the death toll numbers that secularism has secularism has killed millions more than Christendom under Constantine ever could have drained of. So it's not whether, but which. So the question is, if we have to have some religion, if we have to have some law, if we have to legislate some morality, what's our best option? We're Christians. Yeah. God's law. Well, Pastor Joel, I just want to take a moment to thank you for being on the show. Uh, for our listeners, if you've listened this far, you... We'll find out why we picked Pastor Joel to to speak about this topic of post-millennialism. He definitely came to this episode prepared, and he comes to each and everything that he does prepared. So if you want to know more about him, go ahead to rightresponseministries.com, or you could, of course, check out his YouTube page where he does a lot of this, comes fully prepared, and speaks about important topics going on in our world and important topics about the Bible as well. So make sure you check them out. And for Bible Dingers, you know how to reach us. You could search at Bible Dingers across the board on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And uh, we definitely hope you enjoyed this episode and learned some stuff. Pastor Joel, thank you once again. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks a lot, man.